And we are back with another episode of Ladies First. I'm Corey. Today I am joined by Sahar, who survived our first episode of that teleserial. Barely. Hello! And Taylor, our resident historian, is back because we're talking about some history again today. Hello! Um, so if you listened to our last it, well, if you made it through all the way for last episode of Ladies First, because it was pretty chaotic, uh, I mentioned that we were going to be talking a little bit more substance this week, um, or this episode, uh, especially with sartorial choices and kind of like fashion and queer expression and how that could kind of be uh, gatekeeping as well, so... Obviously, I had Taylor. I was like, Taylor, will you please come do this with me because you're so good at history? And she's like, fine, I guess. No, that's not what she said. She said, sure. <laughs> I mean, the, out, the multi-page outline and source bibliography I made. I mean, that's, you obviously had to drag me to that. No. Taylor is so good about doing outlines, and then if Sahara and I are doing something, we're like, what did we say about this? Like, after I'm trying to upload the article. Sometimes we have outlines. Sahara and I like to fly by the seat of our pants, metaphorically, and Taylor is a very nice countermeasure to that. See, Corey is kind of lying, though, because for as much as we fly by the seat of our pants, it's a very organized flying by the seat of our pants. It's and very for episodes... organized chaos. We do look things up prior to. It's just yes. Taylor does outlines better than we do. <laughs> it's okay. It works that well. If, if we outline every episode of That's From, I don't know that we would actually get anywhere because we'd both get too excited about how much we could put in the outline. Yeah. So anyways, like I said, we were going to be talking about sartorial choices as an expression of queerness and the connections to queer culture. Uh, We are especially going to be touching on the butch femme discourse. So, you know, buckle up. Buckle up. I'm sure we're going to be getting uh, some opinions. So I'm really going to kick this over because we need to start with some history so i'm going to kick this over to taylor to kind of get us started so we can get some history and then get up to where kind of we are now thank you Corey. so before i get into the meaty discourse stuff of butch femme i want to lay out why to discuss butch femme in only cis lesbian terms is based inherently in gatekeeping and um discrimination because Fun fact, the word lesbian did not originally originally mean to be exclusively attracted to woman, women. It actually was a very general term for a long time for queer women. So, if you a woman a strong who, opinion response number one for this episode. <laughs> and that is why I have a five-page bibliography, yeah. because I'm... And so, to... There is a great quote by Emma Donahue, and though she was writing about British print in the 18th century and how women, queer women were depicted in that, her quote very much applies to how queer women were written about up until the mid-20th century. And what Emma Donahue says is, Usually what writers comment on is the quality of passion between two women, not their personal histories. Lesbian culture seems to have been understood as a matter of relationships and habitual practices, rather than self-identifications. Whether or not a woman also had loving relationships with men, or passionate connections with women were worthy of comment. And that's in her book, Passions Between Women. And it's very much this idea that if you were queer in any way, that kind of like threw you in with the rest of the gays. That's how the straight world, cis-straight world, saw queer people and queer women. And... Very much the idea of specific labels like lesbian, gay, bisexual, asexual, pan, whatever. They existed to a degree throughout the 20th century, but we didn't really see them the way they are today until the end of the 20th century because of identity politics. So, for example, there is, like, I was reading an article just yesterday that was written in 2017, and it was about, like, queer women who worked in entertainment in, from 1920 to 1940. 
And the author, you know, talked about how these women were queer, but it's not really accurate to call them lesbians because they weren't the modern lesbian identity yet, but they are still queer having relationships with women. Mm-hmm. And then the author mentioned how some of them had heterosexual relationships, dalliances, and desires. And then the author never used the word bisexual or pansexual in the entire article and just used the word lesbian. And so there's one that we've forgotten the meaning of the word lesbian and how it's actually been a very complex change over time. And also, bisexual, pansexual women and people in general have been erased by straight and cis gay people in both sides of history and academia. Um, there's Even a great... the truck agrees with you. <laughs> <laughs> that truck knows its shit. There's a great oh. book... There's a great book that I started reading online called Her Neighbor's Wife that came out this past year. And it's about, in like the 1950s, how you had this traditional archetypal straight American family. There was actually a lot of women having affairs with their neighbor's wife. And one thing the author really harps on is you had women who were very much attracted to men, but also attracted to women and just acted on their feelings, but didn't have the language for it. The word bisexual as an orientation didn't was around at the beginning of the 20th century and being used as an orientation, but it was really only in an academic context. You didn't really see the word bisexual being used as a personal identity label for many queer people until the 70s after Stonewall. And that's why you don't see organizations that are specifically for bisexual people until the 70s. Like, there is a sexology magazine from 1953 that's, like, this, the story of a lesbian. And there's a chart, and it's, like, the lesbian, like, spectrum, basically. So it's, like, you have no lesbian, no lesbian woman, no, like, attraction to women. You have this one woman who's, like, half lesbian, like, half attracted to men. And then you have the exclusive lesbian. So even in an academic context, there was... They describe bisexuality, but weren't actually naming it, because bisexual wasn't a very, like, well-known term. And it was just very different the way we think of it now. And also, those who self-identified as bisexual often were not necessarily encouraged to. There is Stella Rush, who was a bisexual woman who came out in the late 1940s, who identified as bisexual... And went to a bar and was, you know, basically was told how bisexuals are the worst mm-hmm. by another queer woman. And so, if you're already in the coming out stage, you may not want to take on an identity label that's stigmatized on both sides. And so, there's just really a lot of erasure and invisibility related to bisexual people and the community as a whole. Mm-hmm. And, like, that's the thing. Bisexual women use terms like butch and femme and the D slur, as we claim slur, for decades, up until... And there was always this whole tension related to it in the later 20th century because lesbian and bi women split around the 70s and 80s. And lesbian and bi women split as a community because of a very specific type of political movement that was very alienating to most queer women. And these were the political lesbians or lesbian feminists. And when I refer to political lesbians or lesbian feminists, I'm not referring to general lesbians who are feminists or feminists who are lesbians. I'm referring to a very specific movement based in second waste feminism and lesbian separatism. And this... and. This We're political gonna, we will we will spend an entire we can spend an entire episode on that I know. particular history. Um, Taylor, I think she put it best. She'd refer to that as the ancestral politics of the modern turf movement. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. That's the most succinct way we can put it. But that's kind of where that culture war started. And yeah. I'm just like, so- we will uh, save that for another time because otherwise we're going to be here for a week. Um, Absolutely. So, <laughs> but yeah, yeah when, when we're talking about queer fashion, just understand that up until really like the 70s, 80s, um, there wasn't as much distinction on, oh, this is what this lesbian wore and that's what this 
pansexual person wore because we didn't have the language for it and we didn't have those distinctions. Yes, and so it's the idea that we can't bisexual women can't appropriate old lesbian culture because we helped create that culture and shared it. Right. So I am going to jump in then to Butch and Film, which keeping in mind bisexual and pansexual women were up until like much later in the twentieth century freely using those terms because we were still within that category. So most of you probably have an idea of what butch and femme is. A butch presenting woman dresses, um, you know, more, let's say, masculinely coded as far as popular culture would consider masculine. Um, so, you know, pants tend to have, in some cases, shorter hair, maybe just entirely in men's clothing, um, not really much makeup. And I'm I'm giving you just... We don't have time to go the entire spectrum from butch to femme, so I'm trying to give us a little bit of a condensed um, catch-up. So you have butch women, and then you have femme women who prevent who present more on the feminine side. Like, you know, they may be ultra-femme, or they may just be like, hey, I like women's clothing, and I like looking pretty, or I have my own idea of this. But, um historically it was one presented as masculine and one kind of retained at least some level of feminine ideal or feminine femininity femininity as our current western culture shows it and i'm gonna have sahara comment on something here in a little bit but that's just kind of the basic ideas we're talking about um historically and like i said We've moved beyond a butch and femme dichotomy now, but it, it's helpful to have those ideas as groundworks. And also, Taylor, do you want to explain what kiki is? Yes. So kiki was basically a, a pejorative term for a woman who was neither butch or femme and would sometimes switch between them. Like Stella Rush, the the so modern of, queer women. Yeah, basically, it's the idea. It's basically women who didn't want to fit in either of these very rigid roles and aesthetics. Mm-hmm. And now that we have more freedom of self-expression and visibility, we don't need to rely as much on these very visible, specific roles and looks. And so while I like to be more feminine, I personally am very kiki in my look day to day. Cause like I walk to my job, I'm in customer service. I'm not looking pretty for customers. <laughs> Uh, I think it's interesting how so much of our just wide community slang shifts and changes based on who's using it because Kiki, as we know, is also like a social gathering. So the way that like different people using terms, it makes sense to me that people who are just learning about things are really confused and concerned and just the the politics of it all. So I'm really glad we're doing this episode because there's so much more to it than just like what people like to make fun of, you know, like Tumblr explanations of things or social media explanations of things Mm. well and then you know especially getting back to the original article topic um sartorial expression so as you know with lesbian representation from pre-1970s until now there's been a lot of change in both the freedom we have to be who we are now and the pressures there are. Because, you know, if you were a lesbian, TM, in 1940, most of the time you were still going to have to, unless you were just specifically butch, if you were anywhere else in that spectrum, you would still be mostly presenting as a modern feminine woman. And especially if you were a certain race or if you were, you know based off of race or class. If you were a certain ethnicity Mm -hmm. or if you were in a certain class, you had those other strata as well. So you look at it now, where we are now, it's almost like we have the quote-unquote lesbian uniform and bisexual slash pansexual uniform Mm -hmm. that Tumblr kind of decided on. (laughs) (laughs) So... Basically, uniforms, for some reason, 
we love uniformity, even though we hate it as much as we love it, and we love imposing it on other people. Which, if I, if you don't mind me interrupting just real quickly, I think is really emblematic of like the way that humans, especially like in our, when I say culture, I mean like Euro Western American culture, but also it's filled out because of globalization. We're so quick to using identity labels to solve all of our problems. Mm-hmm. So with the uniform, it becomes that extension of what I would consider, you know, with gaydar, like, let's be real. Gaydar is not at all 100% perfect. And it's also one of those things where it's like a innate, like, kind of like clocking each other when we're walking down the street. But we do that also based on stereotypes. And then those uniforms that we've now, the general we has created, which becomes really problematic because there are plenty of people who don't fit into any of these buckets that have been created when it comes to dress and, and choices for hair and the other stuff we're talking about. Well, just in, like, let's take uh, Muslim women. Yep. If you see a woman wearing hijab, the shorthand is she must be ultra-conservative. Which, you know, if you know Sahar at all is not the case, but that's the <laughs> cultural shorthand we have. And it's also assuming that all Muslim women wear hijab, which I, I do not wear hijab. Right. So we, they become a, a sort of a cultural shorthand, but they also become stereotype. Yep. And it's also a whole discussion then, which we don't have time for this episode, but just like what do hijab wearing women wear? And how does someone present themselves wearing hijab? And I guess jumping out just a little bit, you know, if you're non-binary, hijab immediately identifies you as a female. So there's, or a woman, if you will, or a girl or whatever, you know, not male identity you want to put in there. So it becomes difficult then to like play around with that because someone somewhere is going to be questioning you, which makes it really hard to actually figure out how you want to wear hijab and how you want to present if you aren't a cis woman. Right. And, and, And like we were kind of alluding to, Different cultures have their own different terms. So, like, you know, if you look at black sapphic history, it's, like, stud and fish. Or if you're in Tom mm-hmm. culture, you've got – or Tom culture. Thai culture, <laughs> you have Toms and Ds. So, right. um, you know, even going down to the haircuts, what do we have right now that got popular? The bisexual haircut? Yeah, where it's, like, you bisexual cut off all your hair. bob. <laughs> yeah, the bisexual bob. I mean, I'm guilty of having one, but I – like it because I go to the gym all the time and I don't like being sweaty. Right. Um, I, you know, but we have all of these terms and all of these shorthand identifiers that go along with the terms. And there's a level of gatekeeping, I think, that comes along with it. If you don't fit into these little boxes that we've made for you, like, oh, you're a lesbian. You must use the modern lesbian uniform of a graphic tee, jeans that don't quite fit, and Converse tees with mm-hmm. long limp hair. I'm going to get flamed for that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. Uh, this is a this is a uh, this is all good. We... It's all in love. Um, yeah, <laughs> but yeah, you know, if there's a stereotype, quote unquote, for the Tumblr lesbian, I guess it's you know the graphic tee and the just longer, not really terribly styled hair that's in a ponytail with just kind of jeans that are there in the Converse shirt. Or if you're, you know, the bisexual Bob, if you're bisexual. And I think, um, real quick, I do think part of that is definitely um, whether conscious or not a response to the way that femininity is policed, right? And how, mm-hmm. especially for women who are just bringing out their identity and like wanting to, depending on the situation, wanting to like hide or, or maybe shield themselves from, from people looking at them. So it makes sense that that is one of the options that people are drawn towards. But I also think the haircutting especially, you know, we all joke, uh, regardless of queer or not, like if you cut your hair, then you're having a mental breakdown if you're a woman, right? Like like right. the Twitter, the Tumblr, the, the posts that go viral. But it's also a very cultural thing, right? In South Asian, East Asian I mean, probably every culture, even in, you know, wasp culture, I think, in a, in a sense, cutting your hair is this indication that you are no longer the same woman that you were. And then especially in, and speaking for well, myself, in South film, Asian culture. that shorthand for she's undergoing a metamorphosis. Exactly. Because um, <laughs> that cracks me up when you say about film. Hollywood still thinks that if people change their hairstyle, viewers won't be able to recognize characters. 
and actors. So, so the bi cut is very quick, like the long hair. I mean, Mulan, obviously, right? But in South Asian culture, especially any of the Bengali serials that I watch, any of the Bangladeshi shows that I watch, if someone has short hair, they're either super modern or they're the vixen, villainous character. So mm-hmm. there are no short-haired hero- heroines unless it's because they're like a tomboy. And actually, the only time I've ever seen that happen, her hair does ultimately grow out by the end of the show, right? So even then, even then, she has to do the transformation of tomboy to perfect housewife with long, luscious locks. Um, so it's interesting then when that plays out when it comes to sexuality as well. Because I don't think bisexual women who are cutting their hair necessarily are like, I am now no longer, you know, like, that's Mm -hmm. not part of it. But it gets red on our bodies when we're walking around and people see it. Right. And like, uh, Taylor and I were talking about, you know, there is that uniform, quote, unquote, Mm -hmm. that we have that if, if you are not in that uniform, if you're, if you're ambiguous, or you're not easily pigeonholed, then there's this long hell it's like this suspicion and Mm -hmm. mistrust of that ambiguity taylor exactly Uh, i was just going to say um when you guys were talking about hair i remember there are a lot of posts on tumblr i feel like i've seen about when queer people dye their hair and it's like related to like coping with issues and stuff and i'm just like dyeing your hair is a great way to self-express to express yourself and play with color and art. But it feels like sometimes people want to make changes to their body, like a haircut or a hair dye, something that's not permanent, and use it as, like, a shield. And I think it's important to balance one's aesthetic as expression and statement while also knowing that no matter how you may cut your hair or dye it, you're still going to, like, have to deal with internalized queerphobia or whatnot if you're a mm-hmm. queer person you know like for me like even if I try to cut my hair into a bob I'm gonna be the most straight passing chick out there because <laughs> I'm just I'm just such a straight passing person like well, but then we have that's where that mistrust comes from and I know especially for bisexual women and, and um um femme women oh, you know historically it's you're fickle and you you, yeah. you want the benefits of heterosexuality especially when that doesn't even make any sense in that how the hell are you supposed to tell by looking at someone again this goes back to what i was saying with the gator thing yes there are certain things that i think all of us who who feel a certain way you know like we we like feel energy from certain people walking down the street when we're in rooms with people the way they talk the way especially when they talk about certain topics it feels like oh we can tell right like celebrities are a good example let's take it to a higher level Everything that happened um, with Dakota Johnson recently, I don't know if you two um, saw it, right? But she had in 2017 yeah. done that interview, and then now people are like, look at all these photos with her with women. Clearly, this She is had a totally these- bisexual kitchen. I'm like, how is a kitchen bisexual? Exactly. And so I think, I yeah. think we do this thing where, especially in America, because of our whole representation matters and, you know, warm bodies uh, approach to everything, if we can see someone like us, we've made it, we've revolutionized whatever we're talking about. But the thing is, like, when you're walking down the street, if I walk down the street and see someone with short hair, I might think she's bi. I might also just think she's a straight woman with short hair, right? Like, I'm not going to know until I ask and talk to her. And so... If you this be- saw me walking down the street... And I, I say this with full self-acceptance. I dress like a PTA mom. <laughs> I do. I do. I mean, that's just the style I like. I like my button-up shirts with a sweater over it with a nice collar all done up nicely with a pair of nice jeans and sensible shoes. I mean, I right. I look but like see, a PTA mom or a soccer what's mom. Really, what's really interesting, though, about that is I also expect for the PTA mom, when you said that, my brain immediately went to there's going to be some kind of, like, jewelry. There's going to be some kind of other. And I think that's a really interesting thing, right? Like, the accessories mm-hmm. that change so much of this discussion. And also, for people who have the access to actually wear the clothes they want. Yeah. So it becomes a much broader discussion of, like, when you were talking about with Black African women, like, like who is getting to wear what they want to wear and what does that actually look like? Um, mm-hmm. Have you guys seen the TikToks with the Chinese lesbians? No. I don't okay. do TikTok. I'm too old well, for that. Well, I don't know if it came across through your Twitter. I don't have TikTok either. Long story short, there's some awesome Chinese models who are dating and they have like these beautiful TikToks where it's just like someone videoing them while they walk with their beautiful clothing. And it's like, if you saw them, there's like, how would you know? 
there, there is that their clothing changes every single TikTok, and so it becomes this thing of, again that outfit that you're talking about. I think if people only wear the outfit, that's one thing. But for most of us who do wear different types of clothing, even if it creates part of a larger outfit or a larger haha closet, um, <laughs> there's you know there's going to be a lot harder. It's a lot harder to know without asking. And I think that's an interesting thing that we're talking about here where so much of it is this like subtlety. Like if I wear clothes this way or if I have the buy cut or whatever, then people will know and it'll be safe for me to talk to those people because we see that in each other when that's clearly not the case. To circle back to mistrust, I re-listened today um, to the podcast, the first podcast I did with Corey about coming out Mm -hmm. and people's entitlement towards that and it's really unfair to, like, mistrust someone because they aren't presenting queerness through clothing and other, like, visual cues because some people may not be ready to come out to the world and be easily clocked by even a, the most blind straight person. Like, not blind, but most oblivious straight person mm-hmm. in their I'm family. I'm just going to jump in really quick. Um Clocked has kind of taken on a not great connotation about specifically, like, I can tell this person is trans. Yeah, that's uh, definitely true. It's not to be a little bit more considerate, like, mark somebody, or like, the gaydar. My gaydar Mm -hmm. pings. Yes. Okay, thank you for catching me on that. But yeah, it's it's the idea that some people may not just be ready, and they should never feel pressured to. Mm Mm-hmm. Um. I don't have any personal experience with that, but I'm also not very much involved with queer people a lot in day-to-day just due to the area I live in. But, you know, other people have those experiences, and it sucks they have to deal with that because if you you force a stereotype on a person who's already in a vulnerable position, they're more likely to not join the community, not, like, explore themselves and see if that stereotype fits them or if they are going to create something new. They'll just go back into the closet. Right. Not to mention the very, very confused straight women who just like to wear plaid and flannel. (laughs) Who are just like, who are dealing with the, why does everybody think I'm gay? I literally saw the shorthand. Well, I think it's still so silly, right? Because ultimately, at the end of the day, while this conversation is about history, it's something really important. It's also lays bare how just interesting it is the way that we try to like, it's like the conversation. I I grew up in Oklahoma. Every woman there wears some kind of plaid at some point. Right, right. Well, it's like the term lumberjack lesbian. Like these terms that we make up that make, you know, in a hundred years are... Whoever is doing ladies first in a hundred years talking about that history, like what? <laughs> like what the heck is a lumberjack lesbian? Like the the way we make up these connotations because it's a quick shorthand. Or oh my gosh, do you both remember? You might not, but there was a while um, this t shirt company, like this like really well created long sleeve t shirt company. All of the people in the 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 models, everyone was like, oh my gosh, these are the lumberjack lesbians because it was like really high quality flannel shirts. And I'm like, these models are probably straight. And also, this is such a weird thing to be like, you know, just being so intense about when realistically, just because they wear clothes a certain way does not actually indicate anything about their personhood. And, you know, Sahara made up, brought up a good point that I'd like to get back to again with like, who can afford to dress the certain ways as well? Because some of the stuff that is the quote-unquote lesbian TM or bisexual TM or whatever TM outfit mm-hmm. are not cheap. So, yeah. some who can even, some people may not even be able to afford to dress the, the way they would like to. That was something I was thinking a lot about when I was reading up on femme history and aesthetics because while I, femme is like, the, like, ultimate goal for my look. I can't, like, afford to buy a pair of new heels all the time because heels will get scuffed when walking around. You know, makeup is expensive. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of time and energy that you have to put into the very tr- the feminine look. I once had a great conversation with a trans girl just bonding over not having great mothers and not really having a female figure role model to... Mm-hmm. And just how complicated it is when you are a feminine girl 
who wants to be feminine, but is also a feminist because what what we consider feminine, quote unquote, is so much based in patriarchy and capitalism, you know, the male gaze and mm-hmm. what can be sold to us. And so it's this very complicated relationship that is you have to take time to navigate. And on top of that, it's like you don't it's hard to navigate it if it's expensive and time consuming. Like Well, even quote unquote the uh, hobbies that you're supposed to that can affect your fashion or your sartorial choices. There are certain hobbies or fandoms that it's kind of assumed that you will naturally be a part of that. Again, if you're going to be super into it, require money or time or, you know, like, do you have cable? Do you have internet? Can you afford to go to cons? Can you afford to buy this fan art? Can you afford to buy this other merch for it? And it's just capitalism ruins everything. That's the story of the show. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, and I also just real quick, I think the, the trans, inclusion is really important right because all of this gets turned on its head once Mm -hmm. you include that because i remember there's a lot of talk especially when it comes to black trans women we're we're not going to get into it in this episode because we don't have the time to do it in a justice right but like passing and the and the conversation and all of that and like what it means for a woman who is trans to decide to wear makeup versus a cis woman who's buying makeup because she just is being told to and all of those parts and pieces but i think that's really important because again it goes to who then is able to afford what makes a person uh, quote-unquote accepted, right? Which I know right. is a very, um, not problematic is the right word, it's a very complicated term for the for this conversation, but I think that's important because then, you know, if someone who is cis and a lesbian woman, and I'm going to just use the term for the sake of this conversation, like a lipstick lesbian, the femme lesbian, like someone who wants to wear all of the, quote, beautiful clothes, even though obviously flannel is also beautiful, right? But when when I say beautiful, all of our listeners know exactly what I'm saying because it's shorthand. That makes it really difficult. And so then when you really actually lay it all out, again, it turns into what is acceptable to wear. And then when you break that down by race, ethnicity, background, you know, what is a truly genuinely poor lesbian or bisexual woman wearing? And what does that mean about her sexuality versus someone who can, you know, like on the bold type? Adina, who I do adore and love, but all of her outfits are beautiful and amazing and cost thousands of dollars because it's a TV show. Mm-hmm. How does all of that pan out? It's very different. Um, I used to watch The Walking Dead, and the costume designer, I think her name was Yulin Womble, she talked about once in an interview how she grew up poor in South Africa, and people, like, her co- friends always thought she was wearing designer clothes because she knew how to personalize clothing to make give it a certain look. And I feel like... That's an interesting perspective to have on fashion that creativity to cultivate a specific style can appear rich even when it's not. Mm-hmm. And maybe that idea of how there's a lot of like conformity in fashion, maybe why creativity looks expensive because it's like seems so new. So, and there's a great quote by ContraPoints that from her beauty episode that I actually saved because I wanted to just perfect. Style's a way of cultivating a personal aesthetic that you have complete control over. It's like art and that originality is a virtue. Style is an individual aesthetic, unlike the collective aesthetic of beauty standards. And I feel that's what we need to promote more as a community is letting people play with their style rather than having to conform to a standard. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, and some people just are not into fashion i mean i'm into certain sartorial things but my passions are like watches and fragrances and like freaking suits i'm not into like ladies fashion and if you tried to make me explain something to you (laughs) you know some people it's just not where their passion is and they would rather invest their time into other stuff it's like i look presentable we're good and also for people that can change depending on the context, you know, not it's, for example, in terms of butch and femme in today's world and the way people have so much like compartmentalized their lives, you don't have to be like full on butch or full on ultra femme all the time. And it's also not very feasible or practical or how life works, to be honest. Yeah. yeah. Like, 
You just wear what you can afford and what makes you feel good that is, you know, also decent. You know, don't <laughs> do certain things. You know what I'm talking about. Um, you should know what I'm talking about. Anyways, moving on. <laughs> we are... I also want to do kind of talk about the other, like, little intangible things. Like, some people, um, you know, some women, especially lesbians, like, I will only wear X. And I'm going to get into fragrance here for a little bit because I see so many lesbians who are like, I'm only going to wear, quote, unquote, men's fragrances. And if I wear women's fragrances, I'm selling out and I'm embracing the patriarchy. And I'm like, why? You already spent all that money on you, Please stop. Yeah, I'm like, why? <laughs> if you like how it smells, it shouldn't matter to you. That reminds me of a great Tumblr post I saw a long time ago about the makeup argument and how if women wear makeup, they are think they are like working towards the patriarchy. And the blogger wrote that if you choose not to wear makeup, you're still thinking of the patriarchy, you know, the patriarchy still defines us no matter what we choose because it's part of our everyday life and we have to choose whether to act on it, quote unquote, or to act against it. You know why I don't wear makeup most days? Hmm. Because I'm fucking lazy. (laughs) Same. And I'm proud to not wear a lot of makeup and not have the energy for it because... And it's not even a conscious choice. It's just like, eh, I'm just going to go to the gym and I'm going to be sweating like a mother you-know-what. See, and as the person, as the one who does like to wear makeup, I am very much, uh, I wear makeup for my friends because I know it looks good, but I'm not going to wear it if I'm not leaving the house. You know, for some people, that's what they do. It's part of their self-care. For me, I, so people know me. When I get home, once my hijab is off and when my face is off and by that, when my makeup is all gone, because I like to do a full face. I do yeah. the foundation, concealer, eyeshadow, eyeliner, mascara, highlighter. I love highlighters. It's so much fun. Blush. I do the full thing, right? But once my hijab's off, once my face is off and once I'm in pajamas, I'm not leaving the house again and I'm not doing anything you want unless you've already planned it with me weeks in advance. And right. so I think the thing about clothing and especially when it comes to the layers of this conversation it is an extension of ourselves, right? And it's just like, it's this way for straight women. It's this way for anybody. But I think so much more emphasis gets put on it because so much of our lives is dealing with the fact that the society we live in doesn't like us or want us here. So we try to control uh, as much as we can. We try to control that through our clothing and through the things that we do and the way that we interact with people. And I think that's where that like Tumblr uniform and just in general, the uniform comes in because it's something that people want to use as a way to like, create a bond right like oh if i see another lesbian wearing the same outfit as me we're gonna get along even though that doesn't make any sense even though it's just like with all of these new like uh queer platonic housing groups on facebook which i'm not gonna get into but everyone's like i only want to live with this identity that doesn't make any sense y'all come on come on and i think the same thing is happening with clothing (laughs) yeah i do i want to be very clear there is absolutely i'm not saying anything if you love wearing makeup i'm just saying me personally i'm a lazy fuck and yeah, yeah, yeah. I, spend, I don't think anyone thinks when yeah. <laughs> we're not in the time of COVID. I spend a good three to four hours in the gym every day, so it just doesn't make sense for me to wear it. I do have makeup that if I go out, like on a date night or whatever, or if I want to look nice, I'll put it on. I'm not knocking makeup whatsoever. Um, I also want to talk about like societal policing because yeah. it's not just like we talk about the bisexual Bob, but want you know look at black women's hair. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, you know the amount of policing that goes into you know just black bodies in general so we have black queer people who i'm just like the amount of lines to straddle you know what i'm saying yeah mm-hmm. like did you guys i was just gonna ask did you guys see the um cartoon film hair love yeah. Yes. Yeah, I I watched it again this week and had to make sure I didn't start crying. <laughs> it's such a beautiful movie, but it really captures how, in this subtle way, how black people, especially black women, have had to build their own network to mm-hmm. educate um, people on how to do hair care because mainstream society does not advertise the correct like types of combs and lotions and stuff to use 
I'm, again, and I can't speak much to this because I'm a white girl. <laughs> I can long speak on hair. how exclusionary white queer spaces are. Because they're well, exclusionary I, as fuck. Well, I was going to ask, and I, you know, I don't mean to speak for you, but I also think it's important to bring up just real briefly, like, indigenous hair is a big deal mm-hmm. in the way that people were forced to cut their hair. And, and, yeah. and so I think... I think really it's symbolic of the fact that like white, cis, hetero, the long list of identifiers that we all know and don't love um, is controlling. And I think part of this, right, I mentioned earlier, it totally makes sense that we want to control what we can by including this kind of uniform and this kind of like visible, like you're one of us, we're together, we are one and the same, we are family, capital F family, which is great and important and very needed, especially in these times. But it also means that what happens is everybody else with their mom uh, gets gets harassed, consciously or not. And so it mm-hmm. creates a really unsafe space for a larger majority of people than um, most gay people want to admit, which is frustrating. Oh, absolutely. Well, I mean, you just look how, you know, uh, the larger, I guess, queer community treats queer Muslims. Mm-hmm. Like, the the amount of mental hurdles that non-Muslim queer people have to try to jump through to even try to fathom, like, what? And I've had people ask me, just, like, straight out ask me. I've had so many people straight out ask me. He's like, how could you be queer and be a Muslim? Don't they stone you? Yikes. Why Yikes. would you ask me that to begin with? Well, and I think it's really appropriate. I well, it's Islamophobia, but also it's just like you don't ask Christians that, you don't ask other religious religions that that have unfortunately due to patriarchy in the world that we live in corrupted. You know, people loving each other regardless of gender. Like (sighs) what? Everyone thinks of the story of Lot, and this is you know we've talked about this in that surround. But like, first of all, for those of us who are Muslim, we literally every single day say bismillahirrahmanirrahim which literally means in the name of the most beneficent the most merciful thousands of times a day so personally i don't believe in a god who's salty that, sorry allah please don't smite me that because uh, i'm talking about it this way but like that that's salty about who we love that doesn't make any damn sense to me also sorry for saying damn that's it but like come on leave muslim gays alone we did nothing to you we have more than enough shit to deal with just mm. fuck off like, but also, again, it keeps coming back to this. The people doing so much of the gatekeeping, whether they realize it or not, are white, cisgender, queer people. Yeah. And again, you may not even realize you're doing it. And Sahar has mentioned a few times in this episode, we can understand why you'd want to. But stop it. But ultimately, when you try to enforce these things, you're just excluding more people than you're including. And you're replicating the cis heteropatriarchal system you like to complain about. Mm-hmm. Plus capitalism. <clears throat> yes. Well, you know, that's included in that. It's like Laverne Cox's beautiful quote where she literally lists all of them in a row. And at the end, you're just like, I hate everything. <laughs> yeah, I need to I need to start using this. There's a term called, I think it's hierarchy. Hierarchy. Mm-hmm. hierarchy. Yeah, it's yeah, basically it covers like, everything. Yep. Nice umbrella term, except most people don't know it, so you have to explain it, which then makes it a bit cumbersome. Do you want to explain it on here so we can keep it as shorthand (laughs) for later? Sure. So it was a term created by, I believe, a German feminist writer writing about, like, feminist interpretations of the Bible in the 90s. And karaoke basically comes from ancient Greek for, like, Lord. And it's the idea that this is... It is the system of interlocking hierarchies of oppression. So you don't just have patriarchy, you also have white supremacy. You don't have just white supremacy, you have cis-heteronormativity. You have capitalism. You have... And so it's basically how oppressions interlock and create a very complex system. So, for example, in an article I read, you know, men technically have power over women, but if it's a white woman versus a black genderqueer man or black trans, um, you know, black... Or just a black man in general. Yeah, then it's way more complicated and the white woman will probably have more power. Just in general, yeah. And so it's this idea that life and oppression are not simple usually. 
and that we have to have complex discussions to fully understand where people are coming from and how to best support them and help them fight against oppression. I mean, I know that it's a kind of silly approach, but I do really like the idea of, like, the video game boosters or, you know, playing, like, an obstacle course and, like, what obstacles are in the way for which people. And the karaoke, I think, is a really good way of thinking about the fact that it is incredibly interlocking and you cannot remove one and solve... Like, you can't just remove one and be happy. Like, you have to destroy it all for it to, like, fully let... A society, and by let, I don't mean like, oh, the oppressors let people do it. I mean, like, to let the society actually be truly equitable, which obviously this episode we can't go into for 12 years because we'll be here until next week. But I think it's a really good uh, term to use moving forward because then we don't have to list all 16,000 things yeah. that are a problem. I think <laughs> like if you're wanting an analogy, it's like trying to clear out a patch of land and make it habitable that is currently a minefield. You yeah, can't occupy that right. land until all the mines have been cleared out, because otherwise, kaboom. No one is free until everyone is free. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. So, I think that's about as far as I want us to go for this, because otherwise we're really going to go off on a tangent, and we're going to be here all night. <laughs> <laughs> um, basically, to sum it up, is... We're not saying you can't have your own sense of fashion. We are saying you need to be mindful about what you're wanting to put out with that fashion. Also, you know, just be mindful about where it's coming from and buy responsibly. Anyways, uh, be mindful about why you're dressing the way you are. And if you're even unconsciously trying to enforce that other people should be doing the same like you're the status quo or you're participating in the status quo therefore ergo somebody who is like you must participate in the status quo Mm -hmm. and we also to be frank did not get to everything on our outline so taylor you should still post those things because i think they're important to think about in context of fall culture and the way that fam have been used by i mean there's so many again it's one of those things where we have to have multiple parts an entire episode (laughs) on ballroom culture i mean we probably should, actually. Taylor, you should mark that on your calendar for, like, early 2021 if we're all still here. And we can I find some that. folks. We can find some yeah. folks who are part that of the culture time to, to, to guess. get a couple of guests on. and Make some out. connections. Because um, uh, the three of us are not the people who should be doing no, the leading. Not at all. Like, like, like I said, 2021, that gives us plenty of time to plan and invite people and beg and plead with them to come join our little trash fire. Um, hey, we are not a trash fire. We are fun. Well, okay. The last episode, the last episode we did was a trash fire. You know what? People like our chaos because they like to go back and forth between the chaos and the beautifully outlined historical. Wow, I learned so many things, and my brain just exploded, and everything I was ever taught was a lie. That's not true. Everything you were taught wasn't a lie. That's not the right way of saying it. But I think it's important to constantly be thinking about how much we don't know about our own history because at the end of the day, we just don't. For one, negative reasons, people hide it from us. And two, it's hard to learn all of it unless you have hours of free time, which not everyone does. So we hope that this, you know, the podcast, I know that Taylor's episodes are always really fun because there is just so much history laid out. And I personally love it because I'm like, I can just sit here and learn things and then throw in some words here and there and get really salty. It's great. (laughs) (laughs) She gives you the salt podium instead of you having to build it up on your own. Um, anyways, thank you guys again for listening. Uh, we are going to be going into the fall, and we're going to be a little bit busier, so we won't be able to do two episodes a month again. But we will still be doing an episode every month. Uh, we are not going back on hiatus. But, no, um, you're stuck with us forever now. Yeah, I'm doing three on. podcasts a month starting next month, and I just I can't do. <laughs> Corey makes some really good decisions, but knowing us and how excitable we get, I'm sure there won't be there will be a few surprise ones here and there. Yeah, I'm sure we're gonna at least have one month where we have two. Even if I'm just like, "Hey Taylor, here's how Spreaker (laughs) operates, and here's what you have to do: go grab Rebecca and and like record something. Press a button, you're good. Rebecca's (laughs) such a podcast nerd; she would love it. And just one thing to say: um, one. It's not a trash fire. It's a campfire keeping people warm. And two, since we're talking about fashion, masks are part of everyone's fashion now. Wear a freaking mask. Please, please, please. And thank you. Yes. 
we would like to be able to leave our houses at some point <laughs> so, and not die. Let us leave our house. Yes. Wear your masks now so in a year we can all go out and express our styles in our own way. And on that note, Corey, if you'd like to list all of our other really cool podcasts. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> we have Beneath the Screen of the Ultra Critics coming up. We have my mind just blanked. That's Haram. That Sahara and I do. Uh, next month, we're actually going to be talking about East of La Brea. And Sahara has some exciting news about that, actually. Do you want to tell him really quick? Yeah, I am doing an interview with the three leads, which is super exciting. So that'll be coming out soon, too. Yeah, so that's going to be coming out soon, and then in that episode of That's Haram, um, Sahara and I are actually going to be discussing the show, and then we also have Unabash Book Snobbery and The Fundamentalist. We have Sartorial... Forge Academy. Yeah, I'll get to them really quick. Uh, we have Sartorial Splendor. That's the other podcast I am doing that starts next month, where it's just fashion-ish stuff in general. We have quite a few guests lined up already. I am super excited about it. Um, very diverse guests, too. So I'm very excited to have them on um, when we really get that up and going. And then, like Taylor said, we have Faith Forge Academy. And they are really taking off. So if you've been looking for a diverse group of, like, D&D, if you like RPG, TTRPG, if that's your thing, live plays, you really ought to give them a chance. Uh, check them out. It's a very diverse cast. Um, Steven, the Dungeon Master, very, very nice guy. So give them a chance. They're, uh, every Friday, you can catch a new episode with them. Did I get them all? <laughs> I sure hope so. If not, you know where to find us. <laughs> yeah. So we will have an outline for this uh, that you guys can check out once this episode goes up, um, courtesy of Taylor. Thank you, Taylor. Uh, thanks. I'm glad to. I think that's it for us today. You guys stay safe. Be careful. Wear your masks. Just survive so you can keep coming back and listening to more episodes. Have a good night, everyone. Sahara's just going to leave y'all to England in the wind. I no, no, I, started, <laughs> I, I had already said thank you. And I mean, okay, thank you. See, I'm awkward now. Right, Bye. Now, now we're leaving. <laughs> Bye-bye.